welcome to Better Edge, a Northwestern medicine podcast for physicians. I'm Melanie Cole, and joining me to discuss alternatives to testosterone replacement therapy is Dr. Joshua Halpern. He's an assistant professor of urology at Northwestern Medicine. Dr. Halpern, welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to have you join us today. This is such an interesting topic. As we get into this, please tell us a little bit about the prevalence of testosterone deficiency in men. Yeah, so first of all, thanks for having me back. And testosterone deficiency is more common than, um, than a lot of men think, although the precise prevalence is, um, is really hard to nail down. There have been a lot of studies that have tried to trace this over time on a population-based level, but there's really no specific number that we can get at. That number might be in the single digits in guys in their 20s and 30s and probably approaches 20, 30, maybe even 40% as we see men in their later decades, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Dr. Halpern, I'd like you to give us a quick overview of the history of the AUA guidelines on male infertility, and then we can get into your recently presented alternatives to testosterone replacement therapy at the American Urological Association annual meeting. So first, I'd like you to just kind of give us a little history of those guidelines. So uh, last year in, in 2021, we had the inaugural guidelines from the American Urological Association on male infertility. This is actually a combined guideline with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, and, and these are really robust and comprehensive guidelines helping us with the evaluation and treatment of men with infertility. And as part of those guidelines, there, uh, there are some recommendations and guideline statements about methods of testosterone administration or how to avoid certain types of testosterone administration and what medications are really ideal for treating men who have infertility and low testosterone. Now you presented your alternatives. Why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the takeaways from that presentation and some of those alternatives to exogenous testosterone therapies? Well, I think the key takeaways from the presentation at the AUA were that for men who have low testosterone, um, testosterone replacement therapy is really not the only option for treatment. And in fact, for some men, it is distinctly not an appropriate option. And for those patients, we have alternatives. Specifically, for example, we mentioned men with infertility. We know that exogenous testosterone is actually bad for fertility because it can suppress the HPG axis and it can suppress spermatogenesis. So for men with low testosterone and infertility, um, alternatives to exogenous testosterone are really preferred. There may be some other specific circumstances for men who have low testosterone but are not trying to achieve pregnancy where these alternatives may be appropriate as well. What's the difference then between the first-line management of testosterone replacement therapy as you're talking about these exogenous testosterone therapies? What's the difference between looking to these alternatives and looking for the first-line management of the past however many years? Well, I, I don't know that I would make the distinction between first-line management per se and these alternative therapies. I think it probably is very uh, situation-dependent. So we know that exogenous testosterone, which is how we tend to think about testosterone replacement therapy, um, is essentially the process of giving testosterone back to the body through an injection, through a gel, or through some other mode of uh, administration. 
that gives testosterone directly to the bloodstream. However, what it does is it shuts down the body's own production of testosterone. It also shuts down the body's production of other hormones that are important for sperm production, things like luteinizing hormone, follicle-stimulating hormone that are made in the pituitary gland and stimulate the testicles to make both sperm and testosterone. These alternative therapies tend to have different mechanisms of action. So some of these medications, for example, clomiphene citrate or selective estrogen receptor modulators, these are actually going to stimulate the pituitary to make more of the hormones, FSH and LH, that in turn will increase endogenous testosterone production. You've got other uh, types of therapies such as aromatase inhibitors that block the transformation of testosterone or rather that block the conversion of testosterone to estradiol, which also may lead to increased exogenous testosterone production. And so these are just other pathways, other mechanisms beyond giving testosterone itself that can be very beneficial in the right patient. So expand on that, the right patient. What does that mean? Speak a little bit about the indications for use and some of the factors that physicians should consider before recommending these therapies. Well, each one of these therapies has a unique, um, a unique indication and a unique side effect profile. Um, and I think, as we mentioned, men who are tr- trying to achieve pregnancy are probably one of the main target categories for these medications. Men who are trying to achieve a pregnancy should not be on exogenous testosterone. And so all of these different options are available to them, whether it be a CIRM and aromatase inhibitor or one option we didn't mention are gonadotropins such as HCG and FSH. Now, we use a patient's particular circumstances, whether that be their patient history, um, their physical exam, as well as specifically their hormone profile um, to help determine what might be an optimal treatment for them. The other, um, the other element that is really important here are a patient's symptoms. So, for example, a patient who has low testosterone who is not having symptoms of low testosterone or is merely having symptoms of, for example, low energy and low sex drive, who is coming to see me for fertility, I might place that patient on a medication like Clomid or a selective estrogen receptor modulator. However, if that patient has specific symptoms of having high estrogen levels, for example, if they're having breast tenderness, then I might want to put them on a medication that's going to reduce their estradiol levels and increase their testosterone levels, and that would be, for example, an aromatase inhibitor. And yet there are other patients, for example, some who have um, inherent genetic abnormalities leading to their low testosterone and infertility, something like Kalman syndrome, for example, which is a condition of hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. They necessarily will not respond to some of these other medications, and we need to give them that third option, the gonadotropin option, which is to inject them directly with HCG and FSH. So we really need to individualize this to a patient's history, their symptoms, and their hormone profile. This is so interesting, and what an exciting time to be in your field, helping men with this issue. So how are you incorporating these therapies into your practice? And when you're counseling your patients, you're speaking to other providers here, what would you like them to know about counseling patients, about those side effects for these alternative therapies? Well, I think, first of all, we really use these therapies on a regular basis. So it's important to know that these are not therapeutic options out of left field. These are well-described in the infertility guidelines, 
Infertility doctors have been using them for decades very, very safely and with great efficacy. But I do think that it's important that we counsel our patients and when we're thinking of other providers who might be prescribing these medications is to know that these medications are all being used predominantly in an off-label fashion. So, for example, clomiphene citrate is FDA-approved for female fertility but is used off-label in men who have infertility and low testosterone. And likewise, a lot of these medications are approved for other reasons oftentimes for a female indication, and we're using them off-label. So patients need to be made aware of this, and providers should be made aware of this. But having said that, they tend to be very well-tolerated medications. Each one of these medications does have some mild side effects, but for the most part, they are tolerated quite well. We very rarely have men who are running into issues when we treat them with a serum, with an aromatase inhibitor, or with gonadotropins. As we wrap up, Dr. Halpern, I'd like you to reiterate the key things primary care providers that you would like them to know about when they're considering testosterone replacement therapy and some of the alternatives that are out there now. Well, I think one of the most important takeaways is that exogenous testosterone is really not good for men who are attempting to conceive or interested in future fertility. So in men who are presenting For fertility concerns, we really need to shy away from exogenous testosterone and think about trying one of these alternative therapies. And it's important to know that these alternative therapies are tried and true. There's a wealth of data to support their use, and generally they're very well tolerated. And so beyond infertility patients, there may be other men, as I mentioned, depending on their symptom profile and their hormone profile, who might benefit from these alternatives. And it's something that we should really consider to be in our our armamentarium when we're thinking about treating the patient with low testosterone. Thank you so much, Dr. Halpern. What an informative podcast this was. You're such a great guest. Thank you again for joining us. And to refer your patient or for more information, please visit our website at breakthroughsforphysicians.nm.org slash urology to get connected with one of our providers. That concludes this episode of Better Edge, a Northwestern medicine podcast for physicians. I'm Melanie Cole. 